Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and it is always uh, fun for me uh, to do an interview with someone who, first of all, has made a tremendous contribution to helping Christians stand firm and stand tall for Christ, especially the youth, where it's especially needed today, and but also someone who I have a history with and uh, have been very close with for many, many years. Of course, both of these things are true of my guest today, Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, <laughs> I'm still not used to calling you doctor. I'm still not used to hearing it, to be honest. <laughs> I still turn around and look for my dad or something. <laughs> how long, how far back do we go? You know, I first remember hearing about you when I was a student at Biola, mid to late 90s. And then I went to a conference you did with Dennis McCallum on truth. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That was the earliest days of Stand a Reason. Right. Dennis and, McCallum, who had been a light and powerhouse guy that's right. when I was first a Christian. Now he's the pastor of a really big church in Columbus, Ohio, called mm. Zenos Christian Fellowship. I mean, they're big church. They're, like a, they're scattered all over the city now. So you went to that conference, huh? I did. I probably said hi, but I wasn't doing any speaking, any writing. There was no context or reason why I'd be different than anybody else that you was were there. You just but some kid. Yeah. I just went. I, everyone was talking about postmodernism, and Dennis's book was exploding. Right. Heard you in chapel a couple times and thought, Over you know, at Biola. At, right. at Biola. I'm going to mm. take a Friday and or Saturday, whatever it was, and go take some notes and uh, I remember that well. Yeah. But I think we most connected when we did the MA Phil program right. and started having classes together and then right. did the mentoring group right. probably early 2000s. Yeah. I have a picture of that group, about five of us that were – Alan Schleeman was in that. Yeah. Stephen, uh, Stephen Wagner was in that. Yep. Uh, both uh, became standards and staffers uh, mm -hmm. eventually. And there's a couple of others that uh, – another MA Phil student that was in there, Amy, a gal named Amy, who mm -hmm. was – you know, she's uh, – everybody's got a story now. So that was a great group. And I look at that picture now again because you were such a young little twerp there, you know. <laughs> you were a young guy. That's almost 20 years ago. You know, when that picture was taken. You know, I was digging around. You got a new book, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But I just got to say, uh, quite accidentally, um, yesterday uh, evening, I was uh, digging around in old, old notes that I'd taken. And it was mm -hmm. an old notebook, you know, a spiral thing, and it was stuffed full of notes. And these are things I took when I was an early Christian. And I opened it up, but I could not believe I saw in this, in this note, it said, Josh McDowell, August 11th. 1974. Wow. In other words, wow. August 11th, 74, I wasn't even a year old in Christ, but I was sitting in a talk that your dad had given. Mm. And what year were you born? So I was born in 76. <laughs> yeah, I was negative you, two. <laughs> you weren't even a twinkle in your dad's eye at that point, huh? So anyway, this was really uh, surprising. And here it is. It's like it's on Matthew 9 and John 4, you mm. know, and here's all this stuff that uh, was great stuff, you know, and I made these really nice, neat notes. But um, so your dad's influence on me mm. goes back from what, before you were born. And, of course, he was one of the people I read when I was – there weren't very many back then. You know, through your dad, there was Francis Schaeffer, there was Walter Martin, there was Norm Geisler, there was John Montgomery, and – that's about it, you know, in the early right. days. And now and now we're just we have so many um quality people like yourself that have been making a contribution and uh it's it's really fabulous. Now you have a new book out well, Sean. I'll tell you about this, I can really jump in. Seventy four. Evidence of Demand's verdict came out in nineteen seventy two. 
So he was really just starting to yeah. build his platform recognition right. and his ministry. That's right. So for me to see that, the fact that you kept it, obviously had some influence on you. You've had a huge influence on me, Greg. I've told you this a bunch of time, oh. but definitely want your viewers and listeners to hear this. You're one of the top people that shaped my thinking in so many different mm. ways. So to see that generational handoff is, is pretty special. Yeah, well, I know you got a lot from your dad, but I'm glad to be kind of one of the people that just have been able to pass something on, pass the baton, so to speak, a little bit to you. And, of course, you've you've uh, taken what you've been given from wherever it's been, mm. uh, and you've used it so well. I mean, here you have a new book, and I was just wondering, what number is this now? <laughs> what number is this? Well, either... Editing or writing or co-writing, I think it's about 20. Okay. That, that, I get exhausted just thinking about it. I got four, <laughs> you know, and every one of them was – I mentioned before the show, I just – handed off the manuscript to Zondervan like a few days ago, mm. and it was like an albatross around my neck. I finally got at least that portion of Good. the enterprise accomplished. As you know, when you write a book, you hand off the manuscript. Okay, that's the big hump you get over, and then you get it back a bunch of other times. you got to reread it four or five times, your own stuff. And and uh, so I still got work ahead of me, but you've done this multitude of times, including helping your dad uh, release a, a new edition of Evidence, which all kinds of added material, et cetera, et cetera. That was one of the most special projects because yeah. that book has just had worldwide massive influence. Right. Everywhere I go, I hear a story from somebody who either helped them keep their faith or God used it to mm -hmm. draw them to the faith. So heading up a whole team to update that was special. So it got in its category one of the books of the year, which to me, apart from the recognition, was just a way of honoring yeah. my dad. Yeah. You know, I, I do have, I do not remember this this event, uh, August 11th, because I was in Hawaii at that time, and uh -huh. uh, I was doing a summer outreach project. It was the first one I did. I wasn't even a year old in Christ. But I do remember um, your dad visiting UCLA uh, somewhere in the time when I was at the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse, you know, where Dick Day was one of the teachers yeah, yeah. Uh, who discipled your dad. Yep. And I was just at Burke Community Church, and mm. Dick Day Jr. goes to that church. Wow. And uh, But I wasn't, I didn't see them this last weekend, two days ago, for some reason. I, I didn't show up, but uh, I would have liked to. But in any event, they contacted me and told me that was their church. But uh, so there's a history there. But what I remember is your dad giving a lecture at UCLA. And uh, I going to that lecture, and it was it was great to see his confidence in the midst of that academic environment that was largely hostile, obviously to him. And here's the picture I have of him afterwards, standing off the podium, and a big group of people around him. Mm. And your dad was just calmly answering questions as people were either, were challenging him or whatever. It was just a picture I have in my mind, and uh, and so it's just great to to see the legacy in your life, you know, of your father and uh, and having spent the time with you at at, uh, at Talbot and the MA Phil program, and you also got an MA theology, and then you got your PhD, and so you're dying by degrees here, but um, still full of life. <laughs> <laughs> and your latest book, A Rebel's Manifesto, subtitled Choose Truth, uh, rather Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love in the Noise of Today's World. So my first question is, after 20-some whatever, now you got another book. So why another book? Well, the very first book that I wrote, 2005, came out in 2006, was a book called Ethics. Oh, I remember that. I e think I endorsed it. I think you did. Yeah. E-T-H-I-X. And I was two or three years into teaching 
and was approached by a publisher because the speaking I was doing and said, hey, you ought to write a book. And funny thing is to me, it never really occurred to me, even with a dad who's written so many books, to write a book. Seriously, I just, it wasn't really on my radar. Huh. And so my thought was, well, what could I, what's needed, because I'm a teacher, and second, where could I genuinely... High school teacher, you high were school at the teacher, time. Right. Bible okay. teacher. Just, uh, that's important and, as part yep. of the big picture. We'll get back to that. Exactly. So I thought, what's needed? What resource could I use? And second, where could I actually make a contribution? Mm -hmm. And I came up with that book. Now, I went to revisit again because it just went out of print after about 16 years. Uh -huh. And I went back and looked at it. I was like, man, alive. The culture has shifted so right, much. Right, right. One way that would really sum it up is in the early 2000s, there wasn't even really social media yet. That's right. That's changed everything. The transgender right. issue is not on people's radars, on and on. So this is an update. But well, it's the probably... same-sex marriage, that SCOTUS yep. decision was 2015. That's so right. that was just, in, you know, the rumblings about that in terms of policy concerns in, in, in the body of Christ and the world in general. So, yeah, so things have changed a lot. I cut you off there. Go ahead. Oh, no worries. So social media has changed the way in which we communicate. That's one issue that I had mm -hmm. to adapt. And then... The other funny thing about this book is when I wrote that first book, I had 10 chapters. And the reason was because books have 10 chapters. I had no more thoughtfulness than that. <laughs> Nothing else to say. Like, I was like, just 10 chapters. You were worn out after 10 and, minutes. I guess. And then now that I'm a parent, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I have my own teenagers. That's right. I'm in the classroom. What kind of book would kids actually use and what would help me as a parent? So I made it 30 chapters shorter and more concise That's with right. more topics. It just shows the evolution of how you think yeah. about writing. Incidentally, um, your oldest son is Scotty. I don't think I'm a, I mean, he's Scotty. I think of, a, you know, a little yeah. guy and he's not a little guy anymore. No. How old is he? He is 18. Oh gosh. This yeah. Is, see, here's the deal. Every time we get a year older. Those kids get a year older. That's, you that's know, right. at least that's old fashioned math, you know, <laughs> and you have your another son with you right mm -hmm. now outside of the studio. Yep. And he is, tell he's, us your name. He's 10 years old. Okay. Shane. Shane. Okay. Yep. So you just have two or don't you have? And then my daughter's in the middle. She's oh, okay. 15. She's All a right. sophomore. Oh, yeah. Oh, I have a sophomore also. So, yep. Uh, that's that's a whole another kind of challenge, yes, you know, a different set of hormones. All right. <laughs> so, uh, Lord be with you, you know. Amen. But, you know, one of the things I've always admired about you, Sean, is your your incredible capability to take all the things you talk about in your professional life and to invest them in your private life as well. Now, I'm a dad. We're in the same kind of field. We do a lot of the same kinds of things, and we have we have teenage children, and I know how difficult that is to do. Um, and so, you know, I tip my hat to you just as a brother and as a dad, a fellow dad, and your ability to to um, invest yourself so well in your own family, not mm -hmm. just the families of others. And I think that lends a lot of credibility to what you have to say here in the Rebels Manifesto. So more broadly now, what it, this is like rethinking the ethics book and some of the things, writing it in a way that's going to be more accessible to young people. So my sense is that's your target here. Your target audience. Exactly. It's Give us an age students. range. 
I would say probably at the lower end junior high, but mm-hmm. thoughtful high schoolers. And yeah, I've, had, I, I've had some college students read it, and they're like, you don't talk down to me. It's still helpful. It's insightful. That's right. But really, Gen Z is my audience. Okay. I, I don't know what that means. I get all mixed up with the letters. <laughs> and by the way, I'm glad there's it's Gen Z because now they've run out of letters, they right? <laughs> so maybe they'll quit doing this kind of thing. But um, Gen Z would be middle schoolers, high schoolers now. Is that age, right? Yeah, roughly. roughly. Demographers would say like 10 to 25. So so this is probably like yeah. 12 to 18. And I've read this, uh, and I read it on the plane on the, on the way to the what, to the East Coast uh, three days ago. It's not hard to read. So it's mm. very accessible, very clear, touches on a lot of key issues, and gives – I like the way you have kind of – at the end of every chapter, you have kind of action guides. Now, in light of what you've learned, uh, then here are ways to – Apply it. I think you have. I'm looking for a chapter right now to see what it says here. So you have a um, a way of. Usually, you have like a couple of steps, you know, of application that are really, really helpful. So this is very, very practical and down to earth. Okay. Now uh, let me let me let me approach the content um, this way. Okay, you've got lots and lots of chapters, and I'm just gonna. And this, the kinds of issues that you cover. Okay, loving your neighbor, thinking Christianly, judging others, entertainment, politics, drugs and addiction, loneliness, bulliness, suicide, assisted suicide, racial tension, sex, homosexuality, gender, pornography. I mean, you cover the environment, poverty, guns and violence, immigration. There's a lot here. Okay. Um, What chapter, what issue do you think here, and they're all important, but in your mind is the most important? important for young people today or maybe there isn't one i don't know but Boy, that's tell tough. me what you think so let me let me frame it a couple ways there's there's timeless questions that young people have and there's timely questions so in others there's questions that have always been there and always will be there and right. then there's some that pop up in the cultural moment right and right now some of the top questions i get clearly are on lgbtq issues uh-huh. in particular transgender anytime right. i do a q and a it's one of the first questions from parents from students so that's a pressing chapter i think kids don't know how to stand on truth, mm-hmm. but be gracious towards their friends who may want them to use a preferred pronoun. So I have a question, maybe you have insight to this. I asked somebody else the other day about this. We're so used to saying LGBTQ plus and whatever else follows, and they keep adding letters to that because they're expanding their coalition. But it used to be LGB, lesbian, gay, lesbian, gay bisexual. Okay. How did... What is the? I'm I'm just still trying to figure this out. How does the transgender thing connect really with the LGB portion of that political enterprise, the cultural enterprise? And I'll just also add this: I have heard from some people that a lot of the LGB crowd don't want the T in there, mm. and there's a reason for that. And maybe I'll get to that in a moment. I just wonder what your thoughts are. I think it's more of a marriage of convenience. In terms of we're going to push back on just the historic Christian traditional view of mm-hmm. sexuality. And so across the LGB, I mean, at the beginning, from what I understand historically, the lesbian and gay community did not see things eye to eye and had issues right. with one another, but started to realize a common cause. So I think that's the common cause mm-hmm. that they've had a marriage of convenience. But 
you're right. It raises real interesting challenges. I just was reading a story this week, and I got to make sure I get the details right, about two women, two lesbians who were in a relationship. And one of the women shifted to become a man. Well, this raises interesting questions mm -hmm. because the other lady in relationship with her says, wait a minute, I'm attracted to women, not to men. Right. But if I recognize that you're a man, now I'm no longer a lesbian. Right. But if I don't recognize, I'm denying who you are. So she's like caught in this bind and all these contradictions start brimming up That's right. when we get down to the particulars themselves. Yeah, it, it's hard if... If gender is has nothing to do with body, then what does it even mean to be a homosexual? I mean, one has to be very, very careful exactly how they characterize it. And the only way you can characterize it is with regards to your sexual apparatus, it seems to me. So mm. a homosexual now, to try to dodge all the gender confusion, is a person with, let's say, gays, with male sexual apparatus who is attracted to another individual with male sexual apparatus, mm. however they may self-identify or whatever clothes they wear. You know, I mean, I don't know how they can get, of course, that creates this kind of confusion that, that you're talking about. And, and this was what I had heard, the reason that the LGB crowd is now uncomfortable, some of them uncomfortable with the T part because it undermines what it means to be L or G or B, you know. I think that's exactly right, which creates some strange bedfellows, so to speak, yeah. between conservative Christians, people like Bill Maher on the oh, left. my goodness. And a number of lesbians have well, spoken I, I out I wouldn't say he's this. on the left. I would consider him a classic liberal, mm, and he is frustrated with leftism, you know, but you just made yeah. two puns. You said strange bedfellows, but you right. also said a marriage between, exactly. you know, and uh, <laughs> this just shows kind of the irony of all of this. But you hinted at something that, um, that just a few moments ago that I, I want to unpack a little bit because to me this is really, really important. And I just want to hear your point of view on this or see if you thought about this. You said that there is this strange, this marriage now, this expansion of the coalition from LGB to T to Q to questioning and all this plus. And it's kind of like uh, a useful expansion of their coalition <clears throat> to kind of be a poke in the eye to anything that is conservative Christian. Hmm. Am, I, am, I, am I summing you up correctly there, what you're after? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would say the primary motivation is to push back against conservative Christians. I think it's a certain view of what it means to be human, a certain view about the nature of, say, relationships and identities uh -huh. that maybe broadly they share in common. But then when it comes culturally and it comes politically— it tends to be the conservative Christians okay, so, who stand gotcha. in the way. Okay, let me qualify. Let me let me alter this a little bit because it's really what I'm getting at. It's not a culture war thing that I have in mind here. It's not us against the Christians. Uh, what what? Uh, and I had an extensive conversation during a Q and A uh, day before yesterday in Washington D.C. area mm -hmm. in this talk that I gave, and uh, and it was on all this gender stuff. And and I'm thinking Ephesians six schemes of the powers of darkness mm. to undermine the creation order which is meant by God for human flourishing of image bearers. 
And what the devil, thinking from this perspective, what the devil's trying to do is destroy the flourishing of image bearers. They can't get a god, so they're going to get a god's image bearers, and they go for the the foundation. It's interesting what Jesus said in Matthew 19 when he was asked about marriage. Here's the first thing he said. Have you not read that from the beginning he made them male That's and right. female? He starts with binary gender as a foundation. So my thinking is, is I'm wondering, maybe not consciously pushing out Christians, but there is a, an effort that my conviction is, is 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 spiritually inspired, and since maybe inspired is not the right word, but, you know, motivated, mm to go after these foundational things that have to do with sex, that have to do with gender, that have to do with marriage and child rearing and all of those things that are right, creation order kinds of, that was what I was getting at. Do you I, think there's something to that? I, I think that's fair. What The only thing I was pushing back on is I think if we asked people within this community that I've talked with, they wouldn't say that's their motivation. They have a right. different view of what it means to love somebody, a different mm-hmm. view of the nature of marriage, a different mm-hmm. view of what it means to flourish. Yeah. So they think they're pushing society forward in a positive direction. They're progressives. But they're progressives. But since it's rooted in such a different worldview mm-hmm. that you and I would say scripture talks about mm-hmm. in very stark terms, mm-hmm. the result is that it is undermining mm-hmm. certain views of creation as scripture talks about. Yeah. So I think we're on the same page yeah. when we look at the root of it versus what they would say is their, their primary motivation. Their primary maybe. motivation. Part of what also that I'm emphasizing is that Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's blinded the mm-hmm. eyes of the unbeliever. He holds the whole world captive to do his will. The the uh, uh, the um, in all of these verses that relate to this, and I think this is what's happened with them. They don't see this, but this is part of the. There's a spiritual dynamic that's that's going on here. So this then, okay, there are two things that I'd like you to speak to, and they reflect my own frustrations to some degree, and I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if you did experience the same thing. The One frustration is the frustration of Christians not understanding biblical truth about these issues. And and what I said, on, and what I say continually, even this manuscript I just turned in, I said, this is not rocket science. You need, you don't need a Bible to know any of this stuff. Mm. All you have to do is to, to observe how reality is structured. Okay, now we know why it's structured that way, but you don't need a Bible. So, so, um, so even so, there's Christians confused. Okay, maybe from pressure, and then. Then they have also there is the in a certain sense the apologetic chance challenge. How do you engage a culture in a productive way given the m- incredible amount of division there is between the way the culture is going and forcing other people to go and the truth of God's world? These are huge questions. Let's take the first one. I would actually argue that many within Gen Z are not only confused about sexuality, but I would say softly affirming. Mm-hmm. They don't have a clue. They know maybe what scripture says, but they have no idea why. And they're so barraged with Netflix and Disney Plus mm-hmm. and the educational system all over social media that affirmation is what love is, yeah. that their their hearts are like, I just don't want to fight this. I want to let people be people and, and love. This would be so, Christi- are you speaking specifically are of Christians? Specifically Christians, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. So I should have clarified well, that. Within so I'm a talking Christian about 
community or something like yeah that's i'm right. talking gen z christians as a whole i yeah. think their hearts are softly affirming and some of that is we haven't taught them why mm-hmm. god designed marriage to be a sexed institution mm-hmm. we haven't taught them why it matters that your gender identity matches up with your biological right, sex right. we haven't taught them how to engage people who see the world differently mm-hmm. so we don't talk about this or we give simplistic answers and then we're surprised when our kids embrace this larger narrative. Mm-hmm. That's a huge issue. That's probably the focus of writing this book is to mm-hmm. help Christians, as you would say, stop the bleeding, so to yeah, speak, yeah, yeah. within the church. Before you get to the second half, I, I just want to insert this so I don't forget it. When I was going through all those old notes from way back when, when I first became a Christian, I was a student at UCLA, and I was a psych, a psych student. I was studying for a psychology bachelor's degree. And I just happened to look at notes of that when I was pulling the notes out from your dad's thing. I saw another one, and it said transgender. I said, wow. what is that doing back there in 1970? Wow. This was 1973, this, uh, early 73. I mean, I don't think I was even a Christian then. Hmm. And, and, and what it described there was that um, genuine transgender uh, starts very early, and by the, because of environmental factors— and uh, developmental factors, and by by the the by the time that they're three or four years old, it's very hard to reverse that. But it's a very 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 small percentage That's of right. the population. Now, it was interesting to read that when there was no political, there was nothing politically at stake in making mm. an, what turns out to be an accurate claim about the nature of it. Now we have this explosion, and it's a fad, you know, it's a social contagion, as some have called it, you know, so I just wanted to kind of throw that in before I forgot it, but I'd asked you about the lack of understanding of Christians, and then the issue, even if you have the understanding of the biblical way, engaging the culture in, in, a, in a productive fashion, hopefully. So I'm going to do a couple things. I'm not going to go to Scripture and cite Romans 1 to a non-believer right. for hopefully obvious reasons. Right. I might refer to Jesus at times. I think Jesus, even apart from the Scriptures, has some authority. Right. So in some conversations, I've said, you know, Jesus viewed this about marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Are you comfortable saying that Jesus, the greatest moral reformer ever, is wrong? Right. And you are on the side of the moral right and Jesus got it wrong. If mm-hmm. so, that's fine. I just like to hear you own it. Notice the question, though. <laughs> See, you're you're asking the question, and it's Absolutely. a very, very good question. You toss the ball in the other court, and I think it's. I call that what a friend we have in Jesus tactic. You know, so uh, we employ Jesus, which, by the way, non-believers do too. They say Jesus never said sure. anything about homosexuality, allegedly. So that they understand the uh, the high the the high stat- stature that Jesus has in people's mind. In and general, by the way, so our governor tried to do this with oh, Mark twelve on abortion. That's yeah, a yeah, separate yeah. issue you've talked about. We have, but you're right. Yeah. So yeah. people do that at yeah. certain times. I yeah. think I think that's good. Now I will do kind of two tactics, depending on the forum forum and who I'm talking with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is sometimes if it's a non-believer. In one sense, some of these issues we're talking about are downstream from who do you think Jesus is? Mm -hmm. Do you believe there's a God? Is there a purpose in the world? Who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. Is the heart of the question I want to get to more than debate issues that are so politically Mm -hmm. sensitive? Doesn't mean I avoid them, but if I'm an evangelist encounter and I can get there, that's where I want to go. By the way, let me just underscore that. I keep banging my mic here. Um, That... When you're in evangelistic circumstance, you're saying, 
their gender views, their in a sense, their political views or their sexual views or even their sexual behaviors, identities, those aren't the issue. That's right. It doesn't matter what your sexual identity is. If everything is just copacetic the way it's supposed to be, you're still lost without Christ for a host of reasons, mm. a host of sins that we're responsible for. So I just want to underscore that. Exactly. I mean, I, Lee Strobel made a comment to me a number of years ago, his book, Cased for a Creator. He has, I think, two chapters on a critique of evolution. Mm-hmm. And he made an offhand comment. He said something effective. You know, if I read that book, I'm not sure I would put those chapters there because I don't want someone to think that before they can become a Christian, right. they have to reject evolution. Right. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting evangelistic strategy. Right. Now, if I'm speaking with a non-believer and we're having more of a tactical engagement, yeah. uh, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm just going to appeal to natural law mm-hmm. because even though people might say they don't believe in God, they live in God's world, That's they're right. made in God's image, right. and I'm going to appeal to common sense and try to find certain contradictions mm-hmm. within the worldview and see how they wrestle with it. By the way, this move is necessary now because the culture is so evangelistic in a sense about its own views. Mm. You know, we try to avoid these issues for the sake of evangelism, and sometimes they are forced upon us. Well, does God hate gays? For example, question's going to be asked. Uh, 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 you don't want to go there. You you, you, you you may not know even how to explain this. You realize gayness isn't the issue. It's sin that's the issue. But nevertheless, that's what you're confronted with. And you get the same kind of challenges with transgender issues. When we do our realities around the country, which you've spoken yeah, for. Uh, I'm on next season. Oh, are you really? <laughs> dialed oh, in, yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. That's really great. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I see, yep. What do I know? I just work here. <laughs> you know, but uh, we're doing this season uh, about uh, – we're, we're going to Seattle in a couple of days, and then we'll be in Minneapolis next month. We ought to have more than 2,000 people signed up for Minneapolis like six weeks in advance. I mean, it's unbelievable what's happening. But this shows that um, that the, these kids really care, and they they need to be uh, they need to be um, engaged. And now I'm blathering on, and I forgot the point that I was making. You know, what, can I jump in with another? Yeah, do that, I don't know if I'm I lost. I don't know if I call this a tactic. But when it comes, comes to the issue of transgender sexuality, these are such sensitive topics where there's often a lot of hurt. And the narrative in our culture is if you don't embrace a certain mm-hmm. view of sexuality, you're hateful, you're bigoted, right. and you're intolerant. Right. So sometimes I've said to people, I said, you know what? Thanks for asking what I think about this. Do you mind if I ask you a first question? I'll say, tell me your story. Mm. Let's find some common ground. I don't know who you are. How would you come to your views about faith? Who's influenced you? Mm-hmm. And it's like the temperature goes down. Yeah. You build bridges, humanize things, and then we can get to the topic in due time. Mm-hmm. It's not avoiding it. I love a good debate and a conversation, <laughs> but sometimes I think, what? how do you plow the ground, so to speak, so it's more receptive? And I also want to show the narrative is that you and I are hateful and we're bigots and we're judgmental. When I say, I'm just going to listen and I care about you, And the Bible has a lot to say about listening and understanding before we speak. Mm -hmm. Proverbs. That goes a long ways relationally with people. This is one of the strengths, I think, of your your whole – your whole approach. And Mm -hmm. ever since I've known you, I mean, this this, – I I was going to say veneer. But I don't mean veneer. I mean – because veneer is a thin thing. Sure. Uh, I mean mean a genuine, deep – Something that characterizes you. That's why I thought the veneer, people see this right away. And this is your compassion for other people. Mm. And I know I, I got, you know, taken uh, t- 
taken a task by an atheist once, and it turns mm. out you befriended this guy, and you've, mm. you've, you you love him. And my response is, oh, hey, here's where he's wrong and I'm right. I mean, it's my, that's just my natural response. But you bring so much of this other part, grace and truth, you know, Jesus, mm. John 1, grace and truth. You bring so much grace. And this is characteristic of virtually every single chapter in your new book, A Rebel's Manifesto. And we're talking about lots of different things here right now, and not so much the chapters, but um, what you're expressing here is all the wisdom that you bring to every single chapter in this book, dealing with each of these tough issues for uh, for parents and students to deal with. So it's, it's a great introduction to all of these issues. But I do agree with you, and now I remember my train of thought here on realities. <laughs> we get more questions from uh, young people that come mm. to realities about the gender stuff. Yep. And we have... The, honest to goodness, it's uh, surprising to me that the kind of moxie this characterized, but we have girls will come in pairs, sit in the front row wow. of of, uh, of uh, breakout sessions on these issues, holding hands and cuddling because they're identifying themselves as, as either bisexual or as lesbian, and they are in the church, and they're completely comfortable mm. doing this. It's not like a fist-in-the-air kind of thing, but they come to our events, and so this kind of helps us see how thoroughgoing the culture has penetrated the culture of our, our young people. Um, so can I'm curious what your advice is. We get to address this all the time, but uh, or ask this, and we've kind of worked out a policy. Do you have uh, an opinion that you would give to young people with regards to the use of names and pronouns of those who identify as transgender? Yeah, I don't have an issue with names because a lot of names are – I mean my name's Sean. I knew someone, <laughs> a girl by the name of Sean. Sure. That's the way a lot of names right. are. So that's not a big issue to me. Preferred pronouns are, are a little bit more difficult for me for a lot of reasons you and I would agree with. But here's a strategy when I'm asked this by students. I would say if somebody says to you, hey, use my preferred pronoun, I would say this. I say, do you mind if we go get some coffee? Because you're asking me to do something that is a big deal to me. Mm -hmm. I want to hear your story, mm -hmm. understand who you are, and how I can best love you mm -hmm. before we get to this issue. Okay. And I tell students, sit down and say, hey, tell me about your family growing up. When did you first experience gender dysphoria? How have people treated you? What's helpful ways people treated you? What's negative ways people right, treated right. you? Have you ever had doubts about Maybe going back, just ask questions, listen, and understand. Mm -hmm. and at the end, you say, do you feel like I've understood where you're coming from? Have I been gracious to you? Is there anything I didn't say you want me to understand? And they're like, no, if you've done a good job. And then I'd say, would you be willing to hear me out mm. so you can understand the gravity of what you're asking me to do? Right. And the reason I'm asking you this is because I'm hoping if we start by understanding each other, we can come to a solution sure. together where you feel cared for as a human being. And I also feel like I'm able to authentically live out mm -hmm. my life as a follower of Jesus. Now, yeah. if the person says no, then to me, you have gone to the lengths and beyond right. showing compassion, mm -hmm. and that's on them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great advice, and it just bears out what I said earlier about the importance of 
uh, that you place on on connecting. Now, of course, it's not always going to be possible in conversations to do that kind of thing with sure. people. It's easier with friends that you have, etc. You got business situations where mm. where all of this stuff is being forced on on folk. But you've you've offered a, 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 some really good advice. And one piece I want to underscore that I think is so helpful. You talked about being authentic, and of course, this is a this is a buzzword from the left. Yep. But it's there's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's uh it sometimes it becomes an idol, all right. So for with them, I think, and so for you to to say, uh, offer well, here's my side, and uh, and essentially saying, do you want me to be authentic and be true to my own convictions? Exactly. Or or should I? Do you want me to be a hypocrite? Maybe there's another way to put it, because now you're you're playing the same card. Okay, you have your views, fine, and uh, but I have my authentic point of view too so i can be myself mm. in this circumstance and a big part of my own approach to this whole thing sean and just a minute we'll talk about deconstruction some of that other stuff you know and doubts that the young people have and you, you deal with a lot of this kind of stuff in your in your book but uh but it is that that um there's a lot of we can't change the world on a lot of these things. It, it just seems the momentum is too great. Doesn't mean that people can't be changed by the Holy Spirit. I don't mean that, but it seems frustrating. We want to get the whole world to think differently, better, you know, healthier. But we can keep the world from changing us, mm. and this is a huge part of my concern right now. Is is protecting the flock from the world without, and from the uh, wolves within. You know, and there are a lot of wolves now. So, can we switch gears here a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Let me say one quick thing. Yeah. By the way, so your question was for a student how they engage your friend. You're absolutely right. In business and in education, it's different. Mm -hmm. So, a friend of mine is the head of an organization called Gateways for Education. He said the number one question he gets asked from teachers is how they navigate this in the classroom. And he said he has very practical advice that he gives. He says Alliance Defending Freedom is waiting for cases like this to defend Christians and their uh -huh. rights. Uh -huh. So there are resources out there for yeah. people in those situations. ADF, too. yeah. Oh, those yep. guys are fabulous. In fact, I, it's so funny, the timing. On my way to do our show mm. today, I went to my to-do list and I pushed the record button and I pushed the new to-do on my task like it says, send money to ADF. I love it. You know, because these guys, went, you know, look, they're the people I'm going to call. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I get nailed and if you get nailed and you get in trouble, you know, with some litigious group, you know, that's who we're going to call. You know, we don't have the resources to, to fight this eight, nine, ten year battle ourselves. And so and that's why it's a great group to be to mm -hmm. be supporting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Now, um, our series right now for reality is deconstruction and deconversion. And um, deconstruction is a kind of a slippery word. You know, a lot of people try to rethink their convictions and wonder what's true and what isn't and try to refine it and become more sound or more biblical. And then others are, as Tim Barnett put it, they're not looking for an answer. They're looking for an excuse or an escape, mm. you know. Mm. And uh, so a lot of the so-called deconstruction is just hostile to the truth and trying to draw people away. And so therefore they deconvert. Um what are your thoughts on the trend in general? Um, is this uh, does this alarm you? Are you deeply concerned about this? Or I mean, I know you would have some concern, but where does this fit on the Richter scale for you? 
Sean. Uh, yeah. So believe it or not, Dr. Sean my, McDowell, my, my next that's who book, I'm talking with. My, my next book that I just turned into manuscript on is uh, actually on deconstruction. Uh, so I've been thinking about this a lot and that's a, another topic, but all that is to say, I've been thinking about this and I think there's, in, in some sense, it's nothing new. The scripture talks about people leaving the faith. Right. That idea is not new. What is new today is with social media, everybody's told now tell your story and express yourself. So we're hearing these stories so much more than we ever have. Right. My suspicion is- Also from high profile individuals. From high profile individuals. My suspicion is it's only gonna get worse. Mm -hmm. Now why? We hear certain people, whether worship leaders, or in some cases, certain pastors or high profile people. And one common thread, we see a lot of church hurt. Mm -hmm. We also see in many cases, bad theology and a lack of depth. Now in the past for somebody to be on stage and produce an album, there were certain gatekeepers that right. would at least try to care about right. character and theology and try to weed that out. Now there's none. Mm -hmm. If you have the right TikTok video, you can become a celebrity in your own mind on TikTok right. overnight and build an audience. Mm -hmm. So now there's less gatekeepers that are there right. and incentive to have a certain voice. Mm -hmm. So I think five, 10 years down the road, what we've heard from worship leaders, we're gonna hear former you know, TikTokers and former YouTubers, mm -hmm. sadly, probably worse. When you say worse, you mean it's going to happen more frequently or it's just going to be more high profile, the things that do happen. And so it looks like it's happening more. I, I don't know. Probably worse numerically yeah. would be my guess. Okay. But because these, of the influence of the high profile people and social media and stuff like that. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. I think for two reasons. Number one, there's less, less gatekeepers to weed out potential right, right. abuse in the past. Right, there's right. none. And now there's so many more people. Mm -hmm. Like celebrity used to kind of mean something in the mm -hmm. past. There are only so many people that are celebrities. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, if you have more Twitter followers than people you follow, in a sense, in your own mind, you're a yeah. kind of celebrity. Right, right, right. right and there's right. such a narrative about these stories that people want to hear. Like, here's an mm -hmm. example. Our, my friend, Bart Campolo. Tony Campolo's oh, son. son. Right. I remember hearing him speak at Biola. He had huge influence on my life in a lot of different ways. He's a humanist. He left his faith. There was a big national story about him. There's been multiple ones. There is no national story about Josh McDowell's son keeping his faith. Oh, yeah. It's not interesting to right, people. Right. It's not going to get the clicks and get the views. It doesn't bleed. It just doesn't tell the story right. that many gatekeepers want to tell. Right. And there's a lot of people that want to tell the story of the faith crumbling. Uh-huh. Or, I mean, John Piper, uh, his son is an atheist, and he's got quite a following. I, my sense he is does. because he's being used by that whole crowd uh, because he's a celebrity He's he's the he's the son of a celebrity Christian, so to speak. I, I, I'm not dissing John Piper. I think he's a you know he he doesn't play to that kind of thing. Right, right. But but because he's so well known, and then his son becomes an atheist, then he's a nice tool to be used against evangelical Christians. So what you, you mentioned about bad theology, and you mentioned about church hurt, and I've see hear that time and time and time again, and uh, you know in our own analysis of that, in our realities that are are, are we still have 
coming up this weekend, um, Seattle, which is, I think, sold out. Amazing. Then we have Minneapolis. And, uh, of course, two weeks ago, we were sold out in Southern California. And then next year, we'll have um, Dallas, and we'll have Philly, and we'll have Augusta, Georgia. But uh, And we, I think, our team has put together an unbelievable a series of presentations Friday night. On, it's just absolutely creative what they've done mm. and nothing like anything we've done before i'm just saying if you haven't signed up and you're able to go to realityapologetics.com <laughs> and you'll you'll see all the stuff you can sign up for it but there's this tremendous need uh, to address that but one of the things we've realized as so we look at it and i'm sure you you've found this in your own research for your book is that there it turns out that the reasons that people are leaving has have almost nothing to do with jesus mm. the man himself and the evidence for Jesus, his resurrection, his life, his miracles, the, uh, the, the, the broader Christian worldview, it's tied to people who n- never had a solid foundation to begin with to understand how this works and, and who had n- bad things happen to them in the church, which that happened. Well, of course, you know, the Christians are just as in many ways, just as they're human beings, they're just as bad as anybody else. So, um, and so they are judging the church instead of assessing Jesus. Does that ring true for you? It does. One of the questions that I've asked publicly, but also in private of people who are leaving or who have left their faith is this. How are you careful and strategic to make sure you leave the Christian faith because you think it's false Mm -hmm. rather than because of some emotional or experience that you've had? Mm -hmm. And I ask that question because, number one, I'm really curious how just people's thinking. Mm-hmm. But second, I also kind of want to plant the thought in their mind right, right. that maybe they're acting more emotionally and experientially right. and haven't taken serious the evidence of Jesus. Right, right. So whenever I, I was sitting in the airport, I can't remember. I think it was maybe in Louisville when I was doing my, my doctorate. And this guy sitting next to me is reading. I can't remember. It was like Sartre, one of these existentialists. Mm-hmm. Struck him up in a conversation. He goes, yeah, I'm kind of leaving my faith. And I'm just being drawn to these existentialists. And I just said to him, I said, hey, have you at least read any books on apologetics that lay out the case for the historical Jesus? Mm -hmm. I said, I'm only asking because if you leave the faith, that's up to you. But if I was in your shoes, I would want to make sure it's not because of some bad experience. It's because you really believe that it's false. Mm-hmm. And of course, he hadn't. Yeah, he interesting. Hadn't. And, and going to the existentialist is not a particularly cheerful worldview, you know. <laughs> a lot of these guys off themselves because uh, this seemed to make sense in light of that worldview. But uh, what's curious about or interesting about your response, Sean, is this is precisely what happened to you. Mm. When you were, I don't know, and I wanted uh, wanted sure. you to talk a little bit about that because you've mentioned this to me before in your dad's response when you went to him. So tell us about that dynamic with your dad, and then I have some other questions about that period of time. Sure. I was probably 19 years old. I think it was my sophomore year at Biola. Mm-hmm. This is about 1995, so we're first getting email addresses, and there's no Google, but we're search, surfing the Internet. And I'm just searching around trying to figure out how this Internet thing works, And I discovered all these websites, these internet atheists who were taking my dad's book, Evidence Demands Verdict, chapter by chapter, doctors, lawyers, historians, and responding to it. Mm -hmm. And as a 19-year-old kid, I mean, I look back at some of those issues now, I'm like, really like the pagan mystery religion? That's such a bad objection, but I'd never heard that before. It was unsettling emotionally 
and intellectually. Now, kids younger today hear these objections in elementary school, yeah. but at that stage, I'm 19 years old, I'm at college, and it kind and of— These are challenges that went to the core, the facts of the matter. The Bible's full right. of contradictions. Right. God is not a creator. Jesus didn't exist. This just unsettled the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of – there was a little bit – I don't want to overstay it, but I was feeling the emotion of this. I remember just sitting in bed being like, wow, if there's really no God, this just kind of changes everything, yeah. feeling that. Mm-hmm. But also I, I had a few mentors in my life that were helping me, but I decided – I don't remember how much longer it was. I decided to go to my dad and just tell him like what I was thinking. Was that hard to do? It was hard to I do. I mean, when I think yeah. about it, I'd like, like oh, oh, that's an OMG kind of moment, you know, got to talk you to know, dad, given who your dad is. And uh, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and a lot of it was I just didn't want to disappoint my dad, mm-hmm. you know, because I love him and just, but I felt like I've got to tell him where I'm at and be honest. He's trained me to care about truth. So we're in Breckenridge, Colorado, and mm-hmm. as best I can remember, and I've ran this off him to make sure he remembers it the same. I just said something effective. Dad, I, I want to know what's true, but I'm not sure that Christianity is really true. I've got a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And he looked back at me. He goes, son, I think that's great. And huh? right. And my thought was like, did you hear what I just said? But interestingly, my dad had actually rehearsed mm. in his mind the kind of scenarios. If my sister said, hey, dad, I'm pregnant. Or if I said, dad, I'm gay. Or dad, yeah. I'm smoking pot. Whatever the scenario was, had practiced ahead of time how he would respond, oh. which I think is brilliant. And so he goes, no, I think it's great. You can't live on my convictions. You've got to find out what you think is true. And Mm -hmm. then he said something like, you know, I really believe Jesus is the truth. If you seek after truth, you're going to discover that. Mm -hmm. And then he said two other things that I remember. He goes, don't, he goes, I see so many people rebelling and rejecting just for the sake of rejecting and rebelling. He said, only walk away if you're convinced that it's not yeah. true make mm-hmm. truth your guide and he, he just said like casually he goes you know your mom and i will love you no matter what uh-huh. and then we were done so mm-hmm. he assured me emotionally mm-hmm. but also just set me free in a sense to i i knew in my mind my dad loved me no matter what but i needed to see it mm-hmm. i needed to feel it so that's really shaped me when i have students come with doubts and questions I want to respond positively. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the root of where those doubts are coming from. It could mm-hmm. be moral. It could be emotional. It could be relational. Mm-hmm. There could be a host of things driving it. And just let them know my love for you has nothing to do with what you believe or don't well, believe. Well, I think this advice is really important for parents because I know about this story because you've told it to me before. I talked to your dad about it, mm. you know, years ago. And I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I want to be like Josh, mm. the way Josh was to Sean. Well, that's before I had teenagers, right? Mm. And then when my kids started growing a little older and then some things started coming out about their views that were very different. I did not handle myself well, and I'm ashamed to say that, Mm. but I didn't, and it was not helpful to the circumstance. Uh, I won't go into a lot of detail there, but I just wasn't wasn't like, though I had the counsel of your father regarding this and also your own testimony that I was aware of. Yeah, I'm going to be like Josh, you know, and I'm going to do... It just didn't come out that way, but you just mentioned something that 
was a big difference. He practiced in advance, which is what, uh, I don't know about you, but it's what I do when I anticipate tough situations yep. as an apologist, you know, whether it's a debate or with a Q&A time or whatever. Or you just, and I talk about this in the tactics book, you know, plan ahead. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then, we're, then we sound like we're fast on our feet, but we just practiced, you know, mm-hmm. so we were ready for it. But I hadn't done that in this circumstance, and I hadn't t- thought to myself, what if, and this didn't happen, but what if my daughter said, Dad, I'm pregnant? Mm-hmm. Or a dad, I'm on drugs or something. And I would say, what would I say? And so I think that prep work really m- made a difference because it had to be bad, hard for your dad, you know, emotionally. But yeah. uh, And then the second thing about affirming y- his love for you no matter what. And I know that in my case, what my goal is with my with my own girls now is not so much to persuade them of my view, but to persuade them of my love for mm. them regardless. So uh, that just, just a note, this isn't just advice for young people. This is mom and dad kind of advice as well. It's just amazing to me. We're not quite done yet, but we're just, we got about five, six minutes to go, five <laughs> minutes to go. And we've just been blowing through here. And, and um, what I, I had this whole thing. I can see notes it. Yeah. That I've not looked at since we first started. And, and partly because uh, I wanted to probe your thinking on sure. a number of these issues. And these are the issues that you talk about um, in, in your book. And I read through a, a lot of the titles of the, uh, the chapters here. And what I want, part of what I, I hope people are picking up, if they don't know you, Sean, is the care and the depth that you have regarding these issues, your ability to communicate them with grace and truth and, and uh, in a clear fashion. This, this book is filled with that kind of thing. If, if you are a parent, and want to get a primer on all of the issues that we that we have ta- been talking about uh, that I've and I read the uh, artificial intelligence even you know culture knowing God's will I mean you've got you got a lot of stuff here in addition to every every topic that's up now you've got a chapter on it and you got a couple of chapters and things that I didn't think you'd ever deal with in a book like this but but you cover the bases and you help explain what's going on and you give uh, throughout the kind of um, substantive and loving action guides that uh, our young people need now you know this now here's how you act do this do that okay so just in a, you know four minutes we have left do you, what would you how, how would you characterize the biggest challenge that a young person who is a within a Christian community, let's just put it broadly, in other words, considers themselves Christian, they're in a church, youth group, whatever, but the, a challenge that they're facing in culture that they have to be really um, prepared for. And I remember a couple of stories you told right in the very beginning, you sure. know, about uh, and facing the culture and standing up. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm baiting you a little bit for that information because it's impressed me right out of the gate. So what, what kind of advice do you want to give to young Christians who are going to be facing a, a very, very much more hostile culture than you and I face? I think that's a fair way to put it, that it's much more hostile some of these issues were academic a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Now they're personal. And this generation's told if you don't hold a certain position and post it on social media, yeah. we're going to shame you. Mm-hmm. We're going to bully you. We're going to come after you. And of course, you know, I still, my son asked me on the drive up here, he's like, Dad, when's the last time someone said really something really mean to you? And I said, Well, it happens pretty much every day. And if I read all the comments, <laughs> it'd probably be hourly. Yeah. 
but I'm 46 years old. Like I can handle it. You know, worst case scenario, I talk with my wife or somebody, whatever, but I can handle it. I think of myself when I was 12 or 13 years old Mm -hmm. and how fragile we are. I mean, just yesterday I was speaking at an event and this girl came up to me and she said, hey, somebody recorded getting mad at somebody else, made a little TikTok video gets a million views at the expense of this precious, beautiful girl who's Mm. probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. Christian gal. Christian gal. So this generation is just feel like, feels like if I make one mistake, everyone's going to shame me and attack me. And it's, it's, it's like they're living on pins and needles, yeah. and many of them feel like volcanoes that are burying stuff inside. This is, by the way, the loving, tolerant generation that is so vicious if you, t- mm. if you cross swords with them. Yeah, I think it, this is an interesting question. I think in the 90s, there was a live and let live yeah. tolerance. I think we shifted to the most judgmental, shaming, uh-huh. non-relativistic culture in that sense. Yeah. You hold the wrong view. We will tell you and pile on you. Yeah, that's right. That's what this generation is yeah. living with. So I think they're just – that. so many of them ha- are spiritually curious. So I saw a poll recently about Gen Zers and even those who don't believe in God are more spiritually curious about Mm. the Bible and Jesus than millennials. Mm. Now, that's a positive step. They don't have some of the same baggage against Christianity that earlier generations did. So that Mm. makes me ask the question, if I write a book, if I'm on social media, if I'm talking, how do I play off that curiosity? Mm -hmm. That's what I do with nonbelievers. With Christians, I want to help them think Christianly and just develop the courage and the practical tools to live out their faith in a Mm. culture. One, two, three. Let me – got 60 seconds, less than that. Um, Live Christianly, have courage, and then have the practical tools to make a difference and live that out in culture. I mean that really, I think, captures what you've done in uh, your, your newest book here, A Rebel's Manifesto, subtitled Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and love amid the noise of today's world. Lots of noise out there, lots of craziness, lots of confusion, desperate need for voices like yours, Sean, to kind of clarify the issues and give the tools so that Christians, especially young Christians, can be courageous. Thank you so much for spending time here. Well, well you know, you got a new book, and you're going to be back, you know. <laughs> this is your first, I will, I will. Your Thank first you. rodeo here with Stand to Reason, so... Anyway, it's great. Sean McDowell, A Rebel's Manifesto, and uh, that's it for us this time, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.